Awesome. It is good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Uh, Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. Uh, Glad to have you this holiday weekend. Um, If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome. Uh, Glad that you would be here with us. And if there's any way that we can serve you or help you get connected to the community here, uh, we'd love to do that. And so come find me or Aaron or anybody else who's been around or who's you've seen up front. We'd really love to get to know you and help you get plugged in here. So... Excited to continue walking our way through the book of 1 Corinthians with you this morning. And so if you, again, are new or maybe you're just visiting or, or uh, maybe you have been, it's been a while, let me just catch you up and we'll dive into our study this morning. So 1 Corinthians is a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the ancient uh, Greek city of Corinth. And it was a, a church that Paul had actually helped plant about five years prior to the writing of this letter. And in Corinth, it was this incredibly important city in the ancient world um, for two, really in two big ways. The first is that it was uh, an incredibly important port city. It was located in such a place where it really was kind of the de facto hub of trade between Rome and the rest of the Mediterranean. And, and so that made it this incredibly wealthy and important city. But, but also, uh, Corinth was a new city. It had been destroyed by Rome and then rebuilt relatively recently. And so uh, it was settled by Rome with freed slaves and former army veterans. And so what you have in Corinth is not only this wealthy, influential port city, but also a new city. It's a place where people are coming to make a name for themselves and setting up new identities and people are uh, trying to create new futures for their families and all different kinds of things. And so in Corinth, there was this incredibly aspirational and and deeply upwardly mobile mindset that was at the very core of the culture. You see, in Corinth, everything revolved around the goal of climbing the social and economic ladders and maintaining your place at the top of those ladders. One commentator summed it up this way. He said, the ideal of the Corinthian culture was the reckless development of the individual. The reckless development of the individual. You see, Corinth was the place you went to make a name for yourself. See, and tragically, what we see is that in the church in Corinth was no exception to that. What's so painfully clear as we've read the letter so far is that they, what they are most deeply committed to, the thing they most care most about is not God's glory and the advancing of his kingdom, but is their own glory and the advancing of their own name and their own kingdom. And as we've seen, that's this self-focused mindset was causing all kinds of problems in Corinth. It was distorting their view of leaders and of leadership. It was leading towards divisions and fighting in the church. It was causing them to try to sue each other, to get every last cent out of one another so they could keep climbing the ladders in Corinth. It was resulting in them not only approving of all kinds of sexual immorality in the lives of others, but, but practicing it themselves. It was causing them to view and to use their marriages and their singleness in primarily self-centered and self-gratifying ways. And like we saw last week in chapter 8 and 10, it was leading them to exercise their own personal freedoms with little to no regard for how that might actually be affecting fellow Christians or their non-Christian neighbors. You see, while this church in Corinth may have believed the message of the gospel, their lives and their community was not being ongoingly formed by it. Instead, their lives and their community were being formed by the values and the ethos of their surrounding culture. And it was not only harming them as individuals, it wasn't just impacting their church community, it was, it was, it was drastically crippling their witness to a watching world. 
And so the common theme that you see running throughout the book, the message that the Apostle Paul keeps reminding them of over and over and over and over again is that, that as Christians we've not been, that we've not only been set free from slavery to the pursuit of our own glory and our own good, but that we've actually been set apart by God to live for his glory and for the good of others. And the reason why Paul has to keep repeating that for them and for us is because we forget all the time. You see, you and I, just like the Corinthians, we live in a culture that is radically focused on the individual. The message we hear over and over again from our world around us is focus on yourself, prioritize yourself, express yourself, demand your rights, make sure you have the freedoms that you want. And it's a, it's a mindset that leads us to value and prioritize the exercising of our own personal rights and freedoms above just about everything else, right? Especially as Americans, right? Are we not so fam deeply familiar with our own rights and freedoms? The holiday weekend we're celebrating this weekend, right, is, is indeed a celebration of those who fought for the rights and freedoms that you and I have here. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to say that the, the rights and the freedoms that we enjoy in this country are somehow uh, wrong or bad. That's not the message I'm trying to proclaim. Or that we shouldn't be thankful for them or something like that. I'm not saying that. The problem, though, as we saw last week, comes when we are more concerned about maintaining and exercising our own rights and freedoms than we are about the good of others. See, there were some in the Corinthian church who were using their freedoms in Christ to engage in their culture in ways that, while not necessarily sinful in and of themselves, were actually having the effect of leading younger and weaker brothers and sisters in Christ back into lives of idolatry and sin, as well as causing their non-Christian neighbors to infer that worshiping idols wasn't a big deal, that it was just fine. And instead of being concerned about how the exercise of their freedoms was negatively impacting the work of the gospel and the lives of others. These Christians are actually primarily concerned about making sure that Paul agrees with them that they really do have the freedom to do what they want to do. And so Paul, in his response we saw last week, he tells them, yeah, you might have certain freedoms to do this or that, but the question isn't what are you free to do or not to do. The question is how might you actually use your freedoms for the sake of others? How might you use the freedoms and rights and liberties you have not for selfish interests but for actually for the good of others? You see, in the gospel, it calls us to stop using our freedoms and our rights in selfish ways. Instead, in response to Jesus' self-sacrificing love for you and out of a love for your brothers and sisters in Christ or your neighbors or your friends that don't know Jesus, the gospel invites and calls us to actually willingly, voluntarily limit our own freedoms, relinquish our rights for the good of others. See, and that leads us to where our study goes this morning. You see, after calling the Corinthian believers to be more committed to the good of others than to exercising their own personal freedoms, Paul goes on in chapter 9 to show them how he did that very thing for them. But it wasn't just the exercising of his personal freedoms that he gladly gave up for their good. It was the use of his very God-given rights 
that he willingly laid down so that nothing would get in the way of people coming to know Jesus. See, and as we study this morning, what I want you to see is that when our lives are motivated by the desire to participate in the gospel, we'll be willing to relinquish not just our freedoms, but even our rights so that the people God has sent us to might encounter and receive the good news of the gospel and be saved by it. When we're motivated by participating in the transforming work of the gospel, it changes the way we see our rights and our freedoms. And it changes the way we look at them and the way that we use them. And it causes us to be glad, even willing to lay them down for the good of others. And so to that end, let's pray as we dive into chapter 9 this morning. Jesus, thank you for our time in your word together. And God, as we come to study, we just humbly ask, as we do every week, uh, that you might meet us in your word as we study. God, and we say that without you doing that, without you uh, empowering me to teach and preach, without you enabling us to have hearts that can respond rightly to your word, that we have no hope of benefiting from our time together. And so we need, Jesus, for you by your spirit to enable us to hear and to see your word rightly, to see it as good news that confronts us, good news that encourages us, good news that challenges us, good news that shapes us. And so, Jesus, we need you to make uh, that true in our hearts and minds this morning and in our lives throughout this week. And so as we gather, we again say we need you. God, and so for our good and for your great glory as we seek to be a people who lives for you, would you meet us as we study this morning? We need you. Amen. Amen. Well, we are this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, continuing our way through the book. We're going to begin in verse Verse 1 this week begins this way. Paul, again, he writes, he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely, am I, surely I am of you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment of me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? That's Peter. Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right, who lack the right to not work for a living? For who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and doesn't drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it's written in the law of Moses. Don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Is it, because of, is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. For if we have sown spiritual seeds among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right to support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered at the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Verse 15, but I have not used any of these rights. And I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast. 
since I'm compelled to preach. For woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, then I have a reward. If not voluntary, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Though I am free and belong to no one, he says, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. And to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. And to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. And so to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those who are not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. And I do this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. All right, so this morning, the point Paul is trying to make is that you should pay your pastors, and you do. So thanks, great job. Let's pray and call it a morning, right? Uh, no, there's a little, maybe there's a little bit more going on there, right? In all seriousness, though, Paul does spend about more than half the passage arguing for why, among other things, he has the right to be paid for his work as a pastor of this church, right? He offers these five complementary arguments for, uh, which all affirm the reality of this right that he has. Verse 7, he, he appeals to ordinary practice, right? He says, soldiers don't serve at their own expense, right? They don't pay, they don't work a part-time job in order so that they can be soldiers. It's their job, right? Farmers and shepherds, they don't go buy the stuff that they are growing themselves, Right? He says, in the same way, Paul, who guarded this Corinthian church like a soldier, intended it like a, a vine dresser, and, and shepherded it like a shepherd, had every right to make his living from the work that he was doing there. In verse 8 through 10, he adds that scriptural precedent is his argument. He, he references the Old Testament, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 25, and how the principles there apply to the same situation that he's in. In verse 11, he, he just refers to common sense, right? He says, if we've sown spiritual things among you, isn't it too much if we, if we reap physical things among you, right? He says, you get paid for the work you do. It's how it is, right? It's just a thing. In addition to ordinary practice and scriptural precedent and common sense, Paul adds religious custom in verse 13, right? He says, don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, right? He says, look around. Just pick any of the religions around. Look at any of them. What you see is that in all of those places, priests are making their living as priests. It's just how it works. And if all that weren't enough, in verse 14, he backs up his argument with the very words of Jesus, referring to Matthew chapter 10, verse 10. He says that the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel, right? And so, so the reality of Paul's rights here are undeniable. And yet what he makes so abundantly and obviously clear is that he is not trying to get the Corinthians to give him his rights. He's not trying to get them to pay him. He's not trying to avail himself of the rights he so very clearly has. Right? He says in verse 15, I'm not writing this in the hopes that you will do such things for me. He says, I'm not, I'm not writing this to get you to give me the rights that I, that I am due, that I have. So why then is he hammering home the reality of his rights here? Why is, why is he making such a big deal out about the fact that he has every right to receive compensation from them for the work that he does as their pastor? 
Here it is, right? Because he wants them to see that the way that he lived among them was a deliberate, intentional choice. That it was deliberate, that he did it for a reason. Moreover, he wants them to see that he did it for their good. Verse 12, he says, we did not make use of these rights. On the contrary, he says, we put up with anything rather than hinder the message of the gospel of Christ. Paul says to them, I willingly, freely gave up my right to be paid by you because I didn't want that to be something that hindered, that impeded the message of the gospel in your life. You see, in Corinth, Corinth was a culture where it was always pay to play, right? You see, everyone wanted to move up the social ladders, and one of the best ways that you could do that is by connecting yourself with important and influential people. And because public speaking and oratory was so highly valued in the Corinthian world, what people would do is that they would try to ingratiate themselves with, with, these, with orators and public speakers, right? And, and uh, they would give them money or have them stay in their homes, and they would do it as a way to kind of create this relational debt with these people. And so they would be entitled then to honor and praise from these influential people in the city. And so they'd be served to help climb them, help themselves climb up the social ladder. What Paul realizes is that he, if he exercises his right to receive compensation for, from the Corinthians, then what he's doing is just, he's just reinforcing that mindset in them. And he's communicating that the message of the gospel is just like any other philosophy of the day. It's just like any other religious teaching of the day that, that Corinth would have found. And so by receiving, by refusing to receive compensation, he, that he was rightfully due, what Paul is saying is that the gospel is different. The message of the gospel is not one where you pay to play. It's not one where you buy your way in to influence and entitlement. And he says the gospel is free. It's altogether different than the world that you live in. One commentator puts it this way. He says, by relinquishing his rights in this way, Paul is shouting to the Corinthians, your whole world runs on purchasing and paying and earning and deserving and entitlement, but the gospel doesn't run on any of that. It's free, and I want you to know that so badly. I want you to experience this good news for yourself so much that I will live my life in such a way that calls your whole system into question. See, doing that wasn't easy for Paul. It was hard, it was costly, it involved suffering. It meant, as he said, that he had to put up with anything. And he put up with a lot from them, not least of which is the fact that he needed to get a whole nother job to support himself on top of what I can only imagine was far more than a full-time job in and of itself pastoring this dumpster fire of a church. And on top of that, the second job that he takes is one where he works with his hands as a tent maker and as a leather worker. And that would have been even crazier than him refusing to get paid for his work as a, as a teacher, as a religious teacher. You see, because in the Corinthian world, working with your hands was something that impressive and influential orators would never even consider doing. The famous Roman orator Cicero, he referred to the work of those who labored with their hands as degrading, saying that, that the very wages of a labor are the badges of slavery. And yet what we see at the end of the passage is that Paul is not afraid at all to take on the title of a slave. 
if that means that people might get to see and encounter the good news of the gospel for what it really is. Verse 19, he says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. See, Paul is willing to forego the exercising of his rights. He is free. He is willing to disadvantage himself financially and socially so that the message of the gospel might actually be seen as the life-giving message of freedom that it really actually is. We see in verses 20 through 22 that Paul's willingness to do that, his willingness to relinquish his rights and to forego his freedoms and to disadvantage himself so that others might be set free by the gospel, it wasn't just a one-time thing that he did for the Corinthians. We see that it was the very pattern of his life, right? Verse 20 says this, To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win, those, uh, to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law. To those who were weak I became weak to win them. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. See, what he's doing in those closing verses, he's, he's saying, he's highlighting how the rights that we might need to relinquish and the freedoms that we might need to willingly forego, they look different depending on who you're trying to reach. See, Paul had to know the culture of Corinth to, and, and, and to know what a hindrance was going to be for them for the gospel. And he had to know the culture of Corinth to know that taking payment from them was going uh, to actually hinder the message of the gospel for them. And he had to know the, the Jewish culture as well to know what freedoms he might have now that he might need to, again, forego and lay down as to not distract people from the message of the gospel. You see, he had to know the people he was trying to reach in order to know how his, the exercise of his own rights or his own freedoms might actually interfere with the message of the gospel going forth. And so I want to ask you, do you know your neighbors like that? Do you know your coworkers like that? Do you know the people that God has sent you to in such a way that you might actually even be able to tell that the way that you use your freedoms or the way you might exercise your rights might actually get in the way of them seeing the gospel for what it really is? And are you willing to lay those things down so that you won't distract people from Jesus and instead show them the kind of self-sacrificing and self-giving freedom that the gospel really imparts. And there are obviously limits to this. Don't get me wrong, right? Paul isn't willing to sin so that people would know Jesus. That's counterproductive, right? He, verse 21, he says that he's not free from God's law. He's saying, he's saying I might not be under the Old Testament law, but I'm not, under, I'm not out from under God's authority. Right? It's his ultimate authority that, that's the thing that I'm under. So I'm not free to live however I want and do whatever I want. That's not what he's talking about. Neither was he willing to compromise on the sufficiency of Jesus. Right? So when the Judaizers said that Titus, one of the guys that uh, Paul was commissioning to be a leader, said that, that he needed to be circumcised in order to be a Christian leader, Paul says, hard no, bud. There's no way we're letting them say that that's what we need to do because that would call into the question the sufficiency of Jesus. And yet in a different situation, he actually has Timothy, another leader, be circumcised as a way to not prevent him from being able to minister to Jewish people. And so there are definitely limits in the way that we do that. But the point Paul is trying to make was that he was willing to lay down whatever rights and freedoms he needed to 
so that people might hear and see and receive the message of the gospel, even if that meant his life was more difficult for it, even if that meant he was disadvantaging himself socially and economically and all these other kinds of ways, whatever it meant, he was willing to do it if people might know Jesus because of it. And so why, the question is, why is that all so important? What causes Paul to choose that live, to live that way and motivates his willingness to relinquish his rights and to forego his freedoms? I need you to see this. It's not just so that people might know Jesus. It's not just that. It is absolutely a part of it. But there is more there, and you can't miss it. Verse 23, he says, I do this all for the sake of the gospel. He says that I might share in its blessings. Literally, the, the translation there says that, so that I might be a participant in it. See, the gospel at its core is a message about, one, about a God who identified with us, one who willingly chose to lay aside his rights, his entitlement for the good of others. D.A. Carson puts it this way, Jesus was God's own agent in creation, one with God from eternity in spectacular glory before anything was, utterly content, utterly holy, and yet he chooses to come to this fallen and broken and damned world as a human so that he might identify with us. And he stands in the line of sinners to be baptized by John the Baptist, even though the whole New Testament testifies he was without sin. And he chooses to identify with sinners, even to the point of going to a cross on our behalf so that we might be saved. And so when Paul says, I do this all for the sake of the gospel, I am glad to relinquish my rights and I am free to forego the exercise of my freedoms. He's not just saying that he wants to share in the benefits of the gospel. What he's saying is that he wants to be a part of it. He wants to participate in it. See, in the very way he goes about doing ministry and proclaiming the gospel and loving people and identifying with them, what he's doing is, is he is participating in the work of the gospel. He is embodying the message of the gospel itself. See, the reality is that you and I are not merely called to believe the gospel, nor are we simply called to tell other people about it. But we, in fact, are called to embody the very message of the gospel with our lives which will in various ways and at various times require us to willingly relinquish our rights and to forego the use of our freedoms so that other people might see the gospel as the life-giving good news it really is. Don't misunderstand me again. I'm not saying that the rights and freedoms we have are bad or that exercising your rights is somehow inherently wrong, or that defending, for example, our own religious freedoms or liberties is somehow in opposition to the gospel. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that, but what I am saying is that if we care more about the ability to exercise our own rights and freedoms than we do about people spending eternity with Jesus, then we have missed the very message of the gospel. One of the things that has been so disheartening for me this past year is to see how so many followers of Jesus in our world 
who, 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 who identify themselves as followers of Jesus are so blatantly and obviously radically committed to their own good and their own freedoms and the own exercising of their own rights at the expense of just about everything else. And they don't even see that the way that they live might actually be communicating something about Jesus that is a lie. And at the same time, I have also been so encouraged by the reality that that has not been the case here at River City. I have seen you guys over and over and over again choose to willingly lay down your rights and your freedoms. Choose to, choose to be willing to be generous and gracious and humble and to be more concerned about the good of others than you are about the exercising of your own rights and your own freedoms in the way that you live and in the way that you speak, communicating what matters most is not your own good and your own kingdom and your own rights and your own privileges, but instead is Jesus' kingdom and his glory and the good of people that don't know him yet. And I want to encourage you because I have seen that over and over in you this year. And I want to call us as a church to continue to live with that kind of a mindset because the reality is the way that you live it tells something about Jesus. It proclaims a message about the gospel that you say is good news. And if you live in such a way where this world is ultimately about yourself, then what you communicate about the gospel is a lie. Because the message of the gospel is that, that we are not free to just live however we want to live and to pursue our own good and our own freedom, but so that we have been set free so that we might actually choose like Jesus did for us to give up our rights and our freedom so that others might not only hear the good news of the gospel, but see it lived out, encounter it, experience it. You see, Jesus, the freest and most entitled person in all of history, did not demand his rights, but freely laid them down so that, that even though he knew it would bring about suffering for him, even though he knew it would be hard for him, Hebrews tells us that he did it for the joy set before him, referring to an eternity with those with whom he came to save. And so when we too are willing to lay down our rights so that others might know him and spend eternity together worshiping him, what we're doing is participating in the gospel. And that is difficult to do. It runs counter to our default motivations. The only way that we'll be willing to do it is when we keep coming back to how Jesus did it for us. When you see him, the most, the great king of the universe, not demanding his rights, but instead laying them down for you and for your good, what that does is it frees you. It frees you because you are not entitled like him. And you are not worthy of what he is worthy of. And whatever rights and freedoms you might have, bail pale in comparison to his and to all he gave up for you. And so when you keep coming back to how he did that for you, it frees you. 
It frees you to live for him and to love him. And that's why every week when we take communion, that's what we're remembering and we're celebrating. We're remembering all that Jesus did for us, remembering his body and his blood broken and shed for us when what he deserved is to be worshipped on bended knee by everyone. And we see his rights and his freedoms laid down in order to save us and to empower us to be a people who lives for him instead of for ourselves. And so communion, it doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it's an opportunity for us to remember all that Jesus has done for us, to be reminded of the rights and freedoms he so gladly gave up that we might have faith in him and life with him forever. And so if you miss the elements on your way in, then you can find them on the tables in the back on your left and on your right. And so as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, if you put your trust in Jesus, if your hope is in, comes from him laying down his rights and freedoms for you, then whenever you're ready, I'd encourage you, take communion. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. But if not... If you're here this morning, you're still figuring out who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And if that's something you're even interested in doing, then I want to encourage you. You are welcome here. But, I, but I'd encourage you to hold off on taking communion. You see, what you really need is Jesus himself. You need him to take your place, to forgive you of your sin, so that you might actually be empowered to live a life not for yourself anymore, but for him. And so receive him before you receive communion. And as we sing, I encourage you, talk with God. Where might he be calling you to relinquish your rights and forego your freedoms so that people who don't know him might experience the good news of the gospel? And if you find yourself fighting that idea, if you find yourself raging against the idea that God might actually, in fact, be calling you to lay down your own rights and freedoms for that purpose, then I'd encourage you to talk to him, ask him why that is so hard. As well as ask Jesus to remind you how he gave up his rights and his freedoms for you and ask him to empower you in response to him to be willing to participate in the transforming work of the gospel. And ask him as well to show you, not just, not just to make you willing to do it, but ask him to show you how to do that in the lives of your neighbors and your coworkers and the people that God has sent you to so that they might know him and spend eternity with him. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come to you this morning. God, in the midst of a culture and a world which celebrates at every front the, the individual rights and freedoms that we have. God, and we want to come together this morning, and we do want to be grateful, Jesus, for all the rights and all the freedoms, not only that we have in our country, but that we have because of you, Jesus. And we don't want to take those things for granted, and we don't want to misunderstand the goodness and the value of those things, but at the same time, Jesus, we don't want to care more about that stuff than we do about people knowing you. And so Jesus, empower us, remind us of how you gladly and freely and willingly relinquished your rights, how you, how, you, how you gave up your own freedoms for us. 
God, show us how you did that, not just to guilt us into doing the same, but so that out of love for you, out of gratitude for you, we might be glad to do it for the good of others. Jesus, cause us as we see the gospel to joyfully give our lives towards participating in it. Not just being observers of it, not just being communicators of it, but those who participate in it. God, for our good, for the salvation of our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers, and most of all, Jesus, for your great glory in all the world, we pray. Amen.